0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning once again in Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28, we've been looking at verse 13 on confession, and uh, we're going to move on to look at verse 14 as we can talk about being happy while you're scared. Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen. how happy is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and his faithfulness to bless our time in the truth, shall we pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness giving you the praise and the glory, Father, for all that you have supplied. We uh, thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness that uh, allows the word of God to go forth, a little here and a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept. So, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved, we call upon you to open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so... um, Try not to forget anything that we studied in verse 13 because the linkage between 13 and 14 is vital. I think it's significant and it helps us to shape uh, the context for what we're scared of in verse 14. And when I first started teaching verse 13, back in the whatever class I was, I think we've taught three or four classes now uh, on confession here in, uh, in verse 13. And originally the The point on the on the left, biblical confession of sin, must include forsaking that sin. And when I first put that slide on the screen, uh, all it said was Proverbs twenty eight thirteen. And some of you that are sharp-eyed observers might have noticed last week or the week before when I attached verse fourteen to verse thirteen, and that came about later on because I was frustrated as anything trying to handle verse fourteen by itself. And then once I realized that the poetry of uh, the Hebrew poetry here uh, linked together verse 13 and verse 14 as a unit. Once I locked in on that, things got a whole lot simpler. And I was really rejoicing over that. So uh, we're going to handle verse 14 today, which is the second half of the 13 and 14 tandem. Remember, we're talking about confession of sin. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. So don't try to hide it. As long as you deny it and hide it and act like uh, you're, you're still okay, then you're carnal and you're going to stay carnal. Because the only way to get back in fellowship is to confess your sins. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you can't hide it. You have to uh, confess. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And I think the bulk of what I really stressed was the second part of that, the forsaking part. Because that's the part that is not mentioned in first John one nine, and if you if your doctrine of rebound is limited to first John one nine and that's the only passage you use to build your doctrine of the biblical confession of sin, then you're missing out on quite a bit and you're missing out on the forsaking aspect that is uh, that is here in proverbs twenty eight thirteen And so we had different subpoints that addressed other additional elements of confession, including it might require the making of amends. It might require the surrender of sinful items. It might require other activity. We, we talked about how it's an expression of repentance, a wholehearted return to the Lord. That if, uh, if you're just mouthing words as an admission, an admission is not a confession. If it's not wholehearted, if it's not repentant, then, okay, you admitted what you did. You cited your sin, but it was not a homologo confession because it was not wholehearted and it was not repentant. Unrepentant admissions are not biblical confessions. Okay, Important that we recognize that. Hiding and denying the sin is useless. Uh, Confession does equal speaking what is right. We had the example of Job 42 there. Confession is not about worthiness. You don't deserve to be restored to fellowship. You're not worthy of confession. There's also a place for corporate confession with the elders of the church. And uh, in a in a very controversial passage in James chapter five, a lot of people would prefer that that's not in the Bible, but it is that we confess our sins to one another and that we pray for. We have our elders come and pray for us. And then finally, First uh, John one verses five through ten. We realize that verse 9 does not sit by itself. Verse 9 sits in a larger discourse on walking in the light versus walking in darkness. And so uh, when we stumble and when we do walk in the darkness, then we do need the cleansing and the confession procedure to be restored to fellowship. But prior to that, we have options available to us to not stumble in the first place. That if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we... uh, have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. So we have an ongoing cleansing that is a preventative cleansing. It's a prophylactic cleansing. It's a a cleansing while we're in fellowship that keeps us from falling out of fellowship, that keeps us from committing that sin in the first place. And so I like to say, uh, very often I like to say, The more we do 1 John 1.7, the less we're going to need 1 John 1.9. And I hope that makes sense. The more we use 1 John 1.7 to keep on being cleansed while we're in fellowship, then um, we won't have to worry about falling into sin and then confessing sin to be restored in verse 9. So there's a larger context there. Confession is the forgiveness and cleansing mechanism for walking in darkness. The better option is to stay walking in the light you won't need the confession at all now we get to the second half of this tandem and as a continuation of the confession so he who conceals his transgression will not prosper he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion how happy is the man who fears always and we're going to retranslate that to make it more forceful to make it more obvious that it's the dread, it's the, it's the uh, scared kind of fear, the dread and the terror kind of fear. It's not the reverence kind of fear. When we talk about the book of Proverbs and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's not the yare reverence fear of the Lord, but it is indeed a dread and a, and a being scared kind of fear. Happy to be scared. Happy is the man who is terrified always. But he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And so this now also speaks to a follow-up to our confession. What is our attitudinal response to confessing and forsaking and finding compassion and being restored to fellowship? Can I proceed the next day and say, All right, everything is normal now. I'm good. Because... I've confessed my sin, and I've forsaken that sin, and I'm restored to fellowship. I have found compassion. And thank God for that. Okay? I don't want to minimize that. But I've found compassion, and I'm back in fellowship. What must my attitude be moving forward? What must my attitude be? And I better be scared, is what this verse is talking about. And I better not harden my heart. I better be looking at my recovery as the grace of God and nothing else. And that if I'm not scared of going right back to my vomit, if I'm not scared of returning to the mire, if I'm not scared uh, of uh, of just becoming enslaved all over again to that sin issue. In other words, if the confession and cleansing was so easy that I then started thinking, hey, it wasn't all that bad actually, you know. And then I do it again. And I confess again, and I do it again, and I confess again. This is actually reflective of a hardening. That's the description here. The hardened heart falling into calamity. So I don't want to fall into calamity. I want to find compassion. I want to keep finding compassion. I want to make sure that this compassion continues in verse 13, that it doesn't just disappear after 24 hours or less than that, uh, that by the constant in and out of fellowship, by the constant roller coaster up and down, you have this calamity. And so, um, when we talk, it's almost like a weather forecast, right? Is it, is it mostly sunny with occasional clouds, or is it mostly cloudy with patches of, of sunshine? Okay? How do you describe your spirituality versus carnality ratio with respect to your daily walk over the last seven days, over the last 30 days, over the last year, over the last 10 years? All right. If you had to evaluate the last 10 years, was it mostly in fellowship with occasional carnality or was it mostly carnality with occasional uh, in fellowship uh, time periods? That's uh, what we're dealing with here. And so verse 14 plugs right into that. It shows the happiness, the Osheray happiness, not the Baraka blessing, but the Osheray happiness, and uh, to have this kind of terror. And so I put it as a subpoint H under point 14. The happiest follow-up to confessing and forsaking is a constant dread of falling back into that mire, falling back into that vomit. We know the scriptures that, that address this. But the happiest follow-up to confessing and forsaking is a constant fear, and that's a dread fear, that's not a reverence, fear of the Lord fear, of falling back into that mire for the pig or the vomit for the dog by way of a hardened heart. And we're going to note especially the usage of pachad, the Hebrew pachad, rather than the yare. When we, when we break down the different verbs and the different nouns and the different expressions for fear. And sometimes even the, the word itself doesn't bail us out. I'll, I'll describe some of that for you here this morning as well. But this is what we have. A statement of happiness is the man who dreads always, who fears always. The verb is pahad, and if you want to see the color wheel on that, we can bring that up. Sometimes that's useful as well. Especially when it's as colorful as that. When it's got multiple colors, right? That means that there's various idiomatic usages and different um, artistic translations when we talk about the science and art of, uh, of hermeneutics and, and interpretation and translation. All right? If, if it was all just one color, blue, and it's translated with the same English word every single time, then uh, that can be a pretty simple... Straightforward exercise. But in this case, pachad as a verb is used 25 times throughout the Old Testament. And look how many different colors are represented in those 25 usages. And so the word dread is the most common. Seven of the 25 uses, the word is translated dread. And if we were to put that in this verse, it might be an interesting understanding. How happy is the man who dreads always. Okay? that sound contradictory or oxymoronic? You you can have both. Just like you can have love and hate at the same time. You can have happiness and fear at the same time. It just depends on what it is you're in dread of. What are you in dread of? What is it that you dread? What is it that you are scared of so much so that it affects your decision making? It affects your priorities. It affects your um, choices that you make okay and and if you're not scared of that sin are you more emboldened to just do it again okay or have you have you done that sin enough too much and you've seen the damage that you're doing to your marriage your family your kids your church you you see that you've done it so often so many times you've been forgiven again and again and again that there's got to be a better procedure moving forward so that we can prolong the compassion and not plunge back into additional calamity. And this is what it is. Proverbs is telling us that you don't fear that sin enough. You don't dread that sin enough. You've got to come to that point where you just decide, wait a minute, I don't want to do that again, so much so that I'm, I'm actually terrified. I think the next time... I mean, how many more times do I have before God just says, That's it, sin unto death, I'm done with you? How much more time before the damage that I've already done becomes irreparable? Where my marriage is over, my church is over, my, my the congregation blows up, or or whatever the, the case may be. That okay, I've harmed them before, but now the harm is 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 un, unbearable. Do I reach the point where I'm that scared? Where I'm that in that much dread, so I like dread as a translation, and uh, those are the seven verses where it is rendered dread. That they might be, uh, you know, worth seeing here as well. Um, your life shall hang in doubt before you. You will be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. Deuteronomy twenty-eight sixty-six. That sounds severe. Okay, that's the kind of pachad that perhaps. That this verse is talking about that gives you the happiness because you dread that sin so much it's motivation for you to stay in fellowship. To to not return to that. To go to your fellow elders and ask for help. To go to other believers and say, please pray for me. And to take those active steps to not go back into that sin pattern. Same thing in that next verse, verse um, 67. So you've got back-to-back verses there in Deuteronomy 28 verses 66 and 67 there if you need a larger context here this is where um, in the cycles of discipline and the judgment that Israel comes under when their nation is dispersed Okay, and uh, you're left few in number uh, as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you so he delights over you to make you perish and destroy you God's delighting either way because he is good in all that he does. The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest. So that's the context for where Israel is going to find no rest while they're in their global dispersion. No resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. I think all of this is context that helps you understand the the impact of the, the verb pachad and the kind of terror and dread and fear that this verb entails. So your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you will be in dread night and day. See how consuming that is? When does it stop? and shall have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, would that it were evening. And in the evening you shall say, would that it were morning. Because of the dread of your heart, which you dread, and for the sight of your eyes, which you see. That's not how it ends, of course. God is faithful. He's going to bring them back. And uh, Israel does have a future. Okay? Other references. Psalm 14, 5. They are in great dread. Remember Psalm 14, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And you have this uh, description here of this lost estate and those that are denying God's existence. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Kind of interesting, isn't it? How this is the kind of a dread that even motivates professed atheism. That, uh, you know, they they profess that there is no God because they're in his image and a, a corner of their darkened soul is terrified that they're accountable of this God that they would prefer not to exist. And so they just say, oh, nope, there's no God. I'm not accountable. But they're in God's image and a part of them dreads the accountability that that they have when Judgment Day arrives. So there's another use of pachad that speaks of the dread, or pachad, excuse me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? This is a good one, Psalm 27, because it includes both of the terms. So there's your yare, there's your reverence, there's your fear of the Lord, the normal word that we have for fear, like in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So the Lord is my light, my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defence of my life, whom shall I dread? Great verse, and it has the contrast between these two verbs of fearing. Whom shall I pach- pachad? Evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies they stumble and fell. A host encamp though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. So there's no place for dread when you have the appropriate fear of the Lord. Okay, not for enemies and adversaries and physical danger. Anyway, that's probably enough on that. Uh, dread is the most common translation. The other one, is, uh, the second most common, is fear. That's how it's uh, rendered in Proverbs 28:14 and some other places. Um, tremble or trembling. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. I think a lot of those trembles you could also render as dread. Uh, terrified, reference in Job 23. Therefore I would be dismayed at his presence when I consider I am terrified of him. Interesting context there. Okay, To be dismayed. When you see these verbs in parallel... I am terrified of him. How about Isaiah 33:14, Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with a consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? This is interesting too, and, and this has a kind of a remarkable context. I don't want to stop and teach all of Isaiah 33 this morning, but... <coughs> you who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my might. And that's the contrast we're going to be looking at in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Those who are far away and those who are near. And the Lord preached to both groups. <coughs> the Gentiles are far away, the Jews were near. But they're going to be made into one new man. They're going to have a nearness that's even more near than the, the nearness that Israel had. So, a lot of this is going to overlap pretty well with our Ephesians series. <coughs> but then you have the terror. He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity, he who rejects unjust gain, we've got that coming up in Proverbs 28, just two more verses, <coughs> and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. I like that. Shaking hands so that they hold no bribe. That's like, you know, after... It's like wiping your hands. After you shake hands with the the person and then you wipe your hands and you show, okay, there's nothing here. He didn't pass me a bribe, okay? We do do that in Scrabble, too. After we draw tiles out of the Scrabble bag, we, we show, okay, we're not hiding any tiles. We haven't palmed any blanks or anything. We'll have those things coming up. All right. Anyway, afraid, shake, stands, great fear, be afraid, thrill... Translated thrill, that got my attention. Isaiah 60 and verse 5, You shall see and be radiant. Your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. So, I mean, this is, uh, you know, rise and shine. Give God the glory, glory. It's a a nice prophecy of the future millennium. And it is almost uh, bizarre that a verb like pachad could be used here that instead of dread, obviously it's an idiomatic usage, but that's why they change it from dread to thrill. Tremble, be in dread, rejoice. Anyway, maybe that's what we, where we get our idioms on thrill rides, right? You, roller coasters and other thrill rides that, you know, essentially it can be recreationally enjoyable to scare yourself in, in, uh, in a plummet on a roller coaster and then you, you come to crave that thrill or jumping out of an airplane or whatever else you choose to do that just gives you that sense of, of dread and then you survive it and you look back and go, ah, that was kind of fun. Let's do that again. Anyway, so in our text then, this is what we're dealing with. This is the dread. This is the fear. It is not the fear of the Lord. Happy is the man who dreads always. And then, like I say, dreads what? Dreads everything? Dreads life? I mean, is he just constantly hiding because he's scared of everything under the sun? No. Once you realize that the poetry links verse 13 with verse 14, you realize the context for this. The dread is the dread of that confessed sin and the dread of going back to the mire, back to the, the filth, of having such a short recovery from the darkness that you have a very quick return to the darkness. That's the dread. Illustrated quite well with Second Peter chapter 2. Um, you know, the key verse is uh, down in verse 22. But what leads up to that? Speaking out arrogant words of vanity. These are false teachers in the local church. Okay. Speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. If he's a real shepherd, if he's a real pastor, he doesn't have to use fleshly enticements to, uh, to, to gather listeners, right? If he's teaching doctrine, you would hopefully have believers positive to Bible doctrine that are hungry for truth. And uh, that's why you have the small congregation you have, right? But if you appeal to fleshly desires, you can bring them in in droves enticing by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. And I've commented on this in the past. I'm sure I'll comment upon it in the future. What does the Scripture talk about when it talks about those who barely escape? And we say, okay, you've confessed, you're out of, fellow- you're out of fellowship, now you're in fellowship, but how, how far out of the woods are you? Okay. Or have you barely escaped? Are you on the verge of plunging right back in again? Okay, you know, somebody that's been an alcoholic for 20 years and then he quits drinking on his first day sober, do we say, all right, you're rescued now. You're you're free and clear. Things are great moving forward. When you have this track record in the past, on the first day of sobriety, I might want to say, Show me another day. Show me a third day. Show me a week. Show me a month. Show me a year. Okay? And they stress that in a lot of the recovery programs where you keep your coin in your pocket and you have your, your days that you're tracking because it was, it's a long time of recovery. Okay? And even the secular world understands that with respect to chemical addictions be nice if uh, Christians could understand that when it comes to sin and spiritual addictions and the recovery that sometimes is a, is a long, hard road because of the damage that was done was not a little bit of damage. So we have phrases like those who barely escape, and that gets my attention. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. So this shows me that there are alternatives to biblical confession whereby these false teachers convince people that they're okay when they're not okay. That they're promised freedom when they're not freed in Christ. They just have the the approval and the sanction of this false teacher so they think better of themselves. Because even those false teachers are also slaves. By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and the Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, you don't lose your salvation no matter how many times you go carnal, but the prolonged carnality has an effective worseness than being an unbeliever in the first place. Okay? Not eternally, of course. There's nothing worse than being in the lake of fire for all eternity. But the experience on this earth, the temporal experience on this earth in this life, is worse for the carnal believer than it is for the unbeliever. Again, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It is better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Because you're accountable. As an unbeliever, how how accountable are you to applying Bible doctrine and living a righteous life? Not at all. God doesn't expect that from you because you're not even saved. But if you are saved, now God's got expectations. You better walk in the light. You better walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That's why the, uh, the last estate is worse than the first. And it has happened to them according to the true proverb. What a great link between the book of Proverbs and here. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. And so my conclusion is, that's what's being dreaded here in verse 14, because of its link to verse 13, happy is the man who dreads always, who dreads the, uh, the sin that so easily entangles us. Right? Aren't we told to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us? It's not hard to do. Sin has a pretty easy time of it because our sin nature is, is working right there internally in our own flesh. And it's not a tough call. Not a lot of arm twisting when our flesh wants to do it. The sin that so easily entangles us. So we want to dread. We dread, the constant dread of falling back into that mire and that vomit. And maybe after a time, after uh, not even a year, maybe after a decade, at a certain point, then perhaps you might ease the dread just a touch. But I still think you want to have a healthy respect, even 10 years later, even 20 years later. Have a healthy respect with a memory of saying, you know what? I never want to go back to that old walk ever again in, uh, in any of these things. All right. Well, I would encourage you, if you want to do more on this, uh, Pachad is Strong's number 6342, and you're going to have an assortment of additional uh, words in the Pachad root. Um, not just the verb Pachad, but also the noun. You've got Pachad, and you've got even the proper name Zalafahad. You remember him? He had a bunch of daughters. And they were disputing uh, the inheritance rights with Moses. Um, I don't know that he dreaded anything, but his name has uh, the the pachad root within the uh, within the name there. So, Zalaphadad, uh, and then uh, Pahadah, feminine noun, referring only used once, referring to this kind of dread or this kind of fear. Don't confuse that with yare, y a r e. Apostrophe because it ends with the aleph, yare, Strong's number thirty three uh, seventy two, and whereas dread is used twenty five times, yare is used three hundred and fifteen times. Okay, much more frequent, much more uh, saturating the Old Testament. It is um, the word for the, the what we understand as reverence, the the godly fear. But even there, don't. Um, this, this um, might disappoint you or discourage you, especially if you haven't even started your Hebrew studies yet. Yare can actually be both a scared kind of fear, and not to the level of dread, but still a scared kind of fear. If you're scared of losing your life or you're scared of, of other things, or the godly reverence where you tremble before the majesty of God and you're humbled before him in the fear of the Lord. Right? And so, um, Yare by itself does not uh, help you out. You've got to look at the context and determine which, which flavor of Yare are we dealing with. Does that make sense? All right, because Yare has a broad spectrum where it can refer to both righteous fear and carnal fear. Just like jealousy. You can have righteous jealousy and carnal jealousy. Or anger. You can have a righteous anger, you can have a carnal anger. Same thing with fear. Fear the righteous fear, the fear of the Lord, the reverence and trembling before God, and then the carnal fear, where you're just a scaredy cat and you shouldn't be. So Yahweh covers both. It's got a broad spectrum of usage. Anyway, I'll let that go for today. You can uh, pursue that at your leisure. Let's look at the next few verses here then. 15 and 16 we're going to handle as a unit. 17 we're going to handle as a unit. Let's talk about wicked and oppressive authority. It's portrayed here with lion and bear savagery. Like a roaring lion and a rushing bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. A leader who is a great oppressor lacks understanding, but he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. All right, so two verses, they are a unit, each with an A and a B. And uh, the poetry links them together in this way. Uh, both verses are speaking about political leadership, uh, or I guess you could also think of it as family leadership, tribal leadership, leadership in, in any capacity. Um, should not be oppressive. Leadership is supposed to be sacrificial. It's supposed to be loving. It's supposed to be protective and provisional. Godly leadership provides and protects and, uh, and so forth. The godly leadership is not oppressing, and it's not... Um, victimizing as we can see here he who hates unjust gain we realize that this this dictator this oppressive authority is only in it for what he's getting out of it the unjust gain as he's as he's becoming quite wealthy over the slaves that he's dominating over in his tyranny so there's a lot to unfold here and especially <laughs> fun to do in an election year, fun to do in a political climate like our nation's in at the moment, but also, I think, vital that we deal with, uh, I think biblically, we want to understand what is oppression. Who is the oppressor? Who is the oppressed? These are buzzwords. These are actually fundamental ideas that are foundational to the woke ideology that has enslaved our nation because they've created this... um, this bivalence, they've, they've created this twofold approach to life, and it's about the oppressor and the oppressed. And they're fighting for the, the liberation of the oppressed, which is why they want to overthrow everything in, in government and culture and, and everything, because they view it as oppressing. And every time they use the word oppressing, and, and uh, I just want to quote Princess Bride, I want to quote that, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. But they use it so religiously that you're not even allowed to dispute it. Because if you try to define terms and you try to analyze with anything analytic, anything with, uh, with logic and with reason, that has no place in the woke culture. Okay, Logic and reason... Well, we what we view as fundamental because of Western civilization and a biblical worldview, and even even the principles of the Enlightenment are totally rejected today. You cannot use logic and reason; that's racist. You cannot use logic and reason because that was the white um, Renaissance and the white Enlightenment, and and they won't they won't listen to you. The other side says, "Oh, sure, you're just blinded by your privilege. You don't understand my." lived experience and, and so you will never convince them that they are not oppressed even though they live in the wealthiest nation this world has ever seen they are oppressed and, and, they, and they're invested in that spiritually, they're invested in that emotionally and religiously so when we come across a, a term like this in the Bible a leader who is a great oppressor we've got to realize that the, biblically speaking this is real oppression Okay, this is Pharaoh enslaving Israel and forcing them to make bricks and not providing uh, straw for the bricks and insisting that they produce the same quota of bricks. I mean, there is such a thing as real oppression where they are enslaved and where the women are abused and where, um, you know, death is a, is a daily uh, danger. Okay, it's not, when the biblical use of oppression is not um, a microaggression because you... You mispronounced me, or you, you, uh, you used my dead name instead of my my identified name, kind of a thing, and and all of these microaggression uh, oppression things. It's just it's it's evil insanity, but sadly, it has dominion over our culture. And uh, the the better we understand it, and the better we um <laughs> we keep ourselves free from that mindset. Uh, the better we can serve the Lord in our in our generation. So, a roaring lion and a rushing bear remind you of anything? Um, the the savagery of the roaring lion and the rushing bear. And this, to me, I think is nice. It, it does remind me of of David and his statements to uh, to King Saul in First Samuel seventeen. Here's David, a ten year old, twelve year old, maybe um, young man that uh, was watching his father's sheep while his older brothers were off to war serving King Saul, they're at war with the Philistines right now they're in the stalemate because they're not, no one is, has enough faith to answer Goliath's challenge and um, so David hears these words and, and uh, he, he's going to volunteer and uh, Saul sends for him and David says to Saul let no man's heart fail on account of him we know this story right? who doesn't know the David and Goliath story? But look at these details. Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Here's here's 10-year-old David or 12-year-old David, and his real concern is not losing the war to the Philistines. The real concern is the Jewish people have lost heart, and their king is not helping them in that. Let no man's heart fail on account of the Philistine, the giant. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. And you get the human viewpoint expressed through Saul. He's not walking by faith. All he can look at is earthly things and say, Nobody has a chance. Goliath is too big. You are but a youth. while well, he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took the lamb from the flock... I went out after him and attacked him. So he's done both, lions and bears, and rescued it from his mouth. You talk about defending a sheep. Okay? It's one thing to, you know, maybe kill him with a sling or something from a distance, but he's got a sheep in his mouth, and you're going to go and seize him, and you're going to go and kill him. I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That's up close and personal. That's the business end of a knife, okay, or a sword, or a spear, or whatever it is. It's not a, 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 a distance, a bow, or an arrow, or a sling. I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That's how you get the, the lamb out of the mouth. okay. And even if you only get part of it out, you can get whatever bits and pieces you can if you can't get the whole sheep out. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. This is a verse we're going to see in, again in um, Ephesians 2. Because Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22 is contrasting the uncircumcision with the so-called circumcision. And we'll be dealing with the Jew-Gentile enmity that is broken down in Christ The position that we have in Christ that ends the Jew-Gentile enmity. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul was convinced, whatever it was. I, I suspect the Holy Spirit was tweaking him to respond to these words to overcome his natural human carnality. And even while he's still out of fellowship, the Holy Spirit convicts him to listen to these words and to gives him whatever little glimmer of hope that he could be rescued from this giant. And so Saul says to David, go and may the Lord be with you. And we know how the rest of that story turns out. So when we see this language of a roaring lion and a rushing bear written by the son of David, <laughs> okay... Uh, do, you, do you find that coincidental at all? Solomon is writing this about the the roaring lion and the rushing bear, and it's it's a part of his family history. It's the the, the what he's learned from his dad growing up, all of this uh, all of this truth. But that metaphor now speaks to what the people experience under tyranny, under unjust government, under a wicked ruler. This is uh, the metaphor for. The like or the as, the simile that describes a wicked ruler over a poor people, and so there's parallels there that we have to look at. We look at the um, parallel of wicked versus poor. We look at the um, the do we see a cause and effect in that? are they poor because of their wicked ruler are they are they depressed are they? are they, because they are oppressed, and you have oppressor in the next verse, uh, that the, the noun there, or the adjective for poor, could be financially poor, but it could simply be uh, poor in, in spirit. It could be poor in their, in their uh, sad estate. But they have this wicked ruler over them. All right? So why does God give the wicked rulers? God gives every ruler. We know that from Daniel. We know that from other passages. That he gives good rulers. He gives wicked rulers. He, he installs kings. He removes kings. And whatever king is on the throne right now is there because God put him there. There is nobody in office, whatever, state, local, government, uh, national, there is nobody in office that God didn't put there because Jesus Christ controls history. We're clear on that. But when we have the wicked ones that are there, we better be clear on why they're there and why God put them there and what kind of judgment is he inflicting and what kind of humbling are we to experience and what kind of um, lessons are to be learned until such time as we might repent and he gives us a godly leader, for example. So there's those parallels. And then it goes on. A leader who has, who is a great oppressor lacks understanding. So there is something that might remedy that. There is something that And again, cause and effect, is he an oppressor because he lacks the understanding? That's what this says. If he gains the understanding, would he be a better leader? I believe that's what this says. Okay. But then he who hates unjust gain. This is one of those disjunctive parallels where when you chart it out, you say, that's not a true opposite. And then, then you can start filling in the, the blanks and, and create the true opposites. It's a way that you can parallel four things instead of two things all in the same poetry of this verse. You know what I'm talking about there? I can draw the picture. A leader who is a great oppressor. Let me uh let me draw a picture. Hebrew poetry. You got the A side and you got the B side. So we put the A side, draw. And this will be worth it. All right. So you have the A part and you have the B part. And when they are synonyms, it's easy enough. Take it, move on. When they're opposites, it's easy enough. Take it, move on. But when they're not quite opposites, you can tell that they're opposed, but they're not exactly opposites. And that's what we have here. So we have a leader. Uh, well, we have a wicked ruler in, in the, verse 15. And then he's paralleled here with a leader who is a great oppressor. So we have great oppressor. I don't know, my handwriting is horrible. And he does not have understanding. No being. Be understanding. Okay? Then in the second part, you have he who hates unjust gain. Hates unjust gain. Who's that guy? Is that a synonym? Is that an antonym? Is that a contrast? Is it a... Is it, it's not parallel. Because he's not a wicked ruler, and he's not a great oppressor. He's actually... And let me put up here, wicked ruler. He hates unjust gain. So he's not a wicked ruler. He's a good ruler. He's not a great oppressor. He's a non-oppressor. He's, a, he's an edifier. He's one that builds up. Okay? He hates unjust gain. Ah... I need to come back up here and fill in this. So this is what you do. You're filling in what's unstated based upon the, um, the not purely antonym things that are stated. So wicked ruler, I'm going to go ahead and put in here good ruler. Why can't I write in good ruler on that side? I can write it in on that side because obviously the poetry of this passage is contrasting the great oppressor with the, with the ruler who hates unjust gain. A wicked ruler with a good ruler. A wicked ruler with a righteous ruler. A good ruler who has understanding. He has been or be we've we've done the the understanding study at least three times maybe five times in the last 10 years of teaching proverbs okay acquire wisdom and with your wisdom acquire understanding all right so we've done we've had understanding passages we'll probably look at it again what else do we have here he who hates unjust gain ah will prolong his days so here's another contrast between not having understanding and having understanding here he prolongs days. Days of his reign, days of his people, the the, the benefit that he has to his culture, to his nation, as opposed to shortening the days. We've got to write that in up here. Shortened days. This is how you fill out the complete poetry of what's being contrasted in these passages uh we we do this constantly throughout the proverbs we have like passages where in the a part it says uh the foolish son is a grief to his father uh but then in the b part it says uh, but the wise son is a delight to his mother things like that the father part the mother part you can go ahead and and crisscross those also put the mother in the top line put the father in the in the bottom line they are equally applicable The Hebrew didn't feel like they had to be so verbose in spelling all those nitty gritty details out there. it, It would be dumb to do that. You can just put those in there because they're implied, they're understood. All right, well, I hope that helps. So we have it here with the wicked ruler, obviously, is the leader who is a great oppressor, and the issue is that he lacks understanding. I think that is key. He might have wisdom. He may have corrupted wisdom. Think about Satan who corrupted his wisdom. Think about Solomon who was the wisest man who ever lived, but look at the end of his train wreck, uh, of his ministry and his kingdom and, and so forth. You can have wisdom without the understanding, in which case, what are you left with? You have, uh, there's a reason why wisdom and craftiness are sometimes used interchangeably. The, the, the craftiness of the crafty. I think the craftiness is what you end up with when you have wisdom minus understanding. Without the, uh, the, uh, the understanding of who God is and what his thoughts are like and what is expected. If you just try to have raw wisdom with no understanding, um, you could be in this position here. A wicked ruler over poor people, a leader, a great oppressor. He who hates unjust gain. So this wicked ruler loves the unjust gain. He's thriving. It's what motivates him. That's the second part of point 15 here. The ruler's lack of understanding is exhibited in the oppression he creates for the unjust gain that he craves. He gives no thought to who he's stepping on. He gives no thought to who's being hurt. doesn't care how the economy gets trashed because he's, he's making bank left and right. He's being personally enriched While at the same time, he drives the nation's economy off a cliff. Just for example, maybe I don't know what what I might be referencing. All right? The ruler's lack of understanding is exhibited in the oppression he creates for the unjust gain that he craves. And back to Isaiah 33 again, we were just there a moment ago. He who walks righteously will speak with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain. You can't bribe a fellow like this. That's not, his, that's not his motivation. That's not what's driving him. Because he's righteous and he's serving the Lord. And shakes his hands, you know, rubs his hands, demonstrates, holding no bribe. Okay? And you might imagine, again, these these guys that, you know, they shake hands and as you part ways after the handshake, you got the, you're palming the, the, the cash that they slipped to you that way, right? And you're expected to just pocket it and, and you just got bought, okay? So we say we, the deal was signed with a handshake. Yeah, it was a handshake with a, you know, a folded $100 bill or whatever it is that's in there and now you're, you're, uh, you're going to do what you're told to do on the basis of that bribe. But not this guy. This guy finishes shaking hands and then he rubs them like that to show, look, I didn't get anything from you. <laughs> I like that metaphor. I like that imagery. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. Because they're trying to suck you into it. They're inviting you. Hey, join us. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to look at that. All right. Anyway, so so, yeah, Isaiah 33, it's a great um, contrast here, a great match with what we're dealing here. He who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. Now the lack of understanding... We've talked about it before. I'm not going to do a full word study on it, but we have these Proverbs already. Proverbs 3 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. You ever quoted that? In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. But notice, this is your own understanding. It's more than wisdom, because with your wisdom, you acquire understanding. Don't lean on your own understanding. Down to verse 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. You want to have both. Don't just stop with wisdom. See, this is the thing where I think knowledge puffs up but love edifies. Where you can have wisdom, you can have biblical information, be a walking Bible encyclopedia. You can have the the, the know-how for righteous living but still not gain the understanding the fullness of that understanding, the being, the bina, of what this talks about. And so, again, I say that's the understanding of God, who He is, the understanding of His character, the understanding of His will, the understanding of Him. You know all the stuff about Him, but do you really know Him? Do you know the Lord? So you have both in tandem there in verse 13. And then in verse 19, the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding... He established the heavens. There's a fun tandem for you. Plug that back into Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you want to know it? Wisdom and understanding were employed in that process. You can also take wisdom as a personal name for Jesus Christ. By wisdom, Jesus Christ is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Anyway, he has both Jesus' personified wisdom and personified understanding. How about uh, chapter 4? These should all just be reviewed. I picked, I picked my favorites. You probably have more. But these just... Uh, how do you forget these? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. Give attention that you may gain understanding. You should have this before you ever leave home. This needs, you, you weren't prepared to... Uh, uh, even if you're biologically old enough, without wisdom and understanding... Are you prepared to stand in your own generation as unto the Lord? For I give you sound teaching, do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender, and the only son in the sight of my mother. Remember Bathsheba was grieving. She had lost a child, and consequence of their adultery. And and then uh, David comforts her, and they have another son, and here's Solomon now. And he gets the name Jedidiah a son to my father, tender and the only son on the side of my mother. She would eventually get three more, but at this point, he's the only one. Then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Think about the childhood Solomon had with David and Bathsheba teaching him doctrine, teaching him wisdom. And they weren't teaching him like they were all, oh so perfect and did everything right. They're teaching him in the recovery of their own adultery and their own Uh, divine discipline acquire wisdom acquire understanding do not forget or turn aside from the words of my mouth so I mean and that's what he did he acquired wisdom he acquired understanding but then he perverted his wisdom and then he departed he forgot and he turned away and he married a thousand women and yeah yeah do not forsake her, she will guard you. Love her, she will watch over you. Again, that's true of Bible doctrine, academically as you're learning it, spiritually as you're fed by it and nourished by it. But then it's also true personally, as personified wisdom is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will guard you. Jesus Christ will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. It's the principal thing. It's the first thing. Lesson number one in wisdom. Keep getting it. Keep getting it. And if you ever decide you've got enough, go back and remind yourself what lesson number one is. Keep getting it. You don't have enough. Keep acquiring it. Acquire wisdom. And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. It's the same verb for acquiring and get. So just get it and keep getting it. With all you're acquiring, get understanding. And this is what the ruler lacks. He lacks understanding... And so he's um, an oppressor, and he and he loves the unjust gain. He's victimizing his people. His lack of understanding is exhibited in the oppression that he creates for the unjust grave, uh, unjust gain that he craves. Note how a righteous leader will actually hate unjust gain. We'll pick up on here next week. This is a sanctified hatred because a righteous leader will hate unjust gain. He doesn't just refuse it. He doesn't just decline. He doesn't just passively say, no, no thanks, I'm good. He viscerally hates it. He hates it. He hates that they offered it. He hates that they thought he would be willing to take it. Think about that. That why is his reputation not strong enough in the Lord that they somehow thought he could be bought? You can hate that idea too. Anyway, so we'll pick up on this. We'll have hating lessons next week. So if you know anybody that that you want to come and hear some hatred classes, next week we'll pick up on how to hate uh, unjust gain and the, the hating application there. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for truth. Thank you for your grace and faithfulness. We give you the praise and glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.